All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, a podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. This is episode 141 of the show. We have been at this for a couple, <laughs> almost an hour, trying to get this thing set up and working. We are on a new platform. This is a new thing we're trying because Google, being the drug dealers that they are, have given us a free service until we were hooked, and now we must pay. And uh, we're trying alternatives that are uh, Bernie Sanders' favorite price of free. Anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about a movie called Crazy Heart, and we have a friend we will introduce in just a moment when we get into the last nearest portion of the show. But before I do that, Robert, how do I sound? Do I sound like a sex robot, or can you hear me fairly well now? I, I heard uh, some of that. Uh, most of it was like somebody walking across a keyboard, like one of those electronic 80s synthesizer keyboards. Now, this, this sounded pretty dope. I don't know if it, in terms of language communication, it was so great for me, but I can assume you asked me a question about something, and so I'll just respond like a politician would. I don't listen to the question <laughs> you just asked me. I answer the question I want to ask, or want to answer. <laughs> so why, yes, I am looking quite slim. Thank you, Daniel. All right, well, that, uh, that's about all the time we have for the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, kidding. Uh, why don't we get into the last night's portion of the show, if you can hear me well enough, Robert, and we will introduce our guest and get into this movie. And appropriate enough that it sounds like music when I talk, because it is a musical movie. So here we go. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. This is episode 84 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 84. You can also find it at the Launchpad Media, but I repeat myself. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about Crazy Heart, the movie starring Jeff Lebowski, or Jeff Bridges as he's otherwise known, and we have a special guest. He is Scott M. He's a Texas-based musician who enjoys good music, good books, and long <laughs> He plays shows and weddings yes. and even runs a trivia night each week. Until his demands are met, Scott's a strong advocate for freedom who is constantly engaging with people on Facebook, especially when it comes to policing and civil asset forfeiture, among other crimes. He's trying to move the needle, the needle back toward liberty, and he's recently downsized and renovated an RV that he now lives in down by the river and is now broadcasting from. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yes. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Friday night. Yeah. It is a Friday night. Now, your, your bio was a lot better than mine. Well, I, I took portions. This is Friday now. I should be working. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I took portions of your bio and I, I embellished a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the reason that this movie got mm -hmm. selected was because you had recent events that happened to open up your Friday nights, and you were playing shows um, in various venues, right? And you had them booked out through the end of the year. And then, uh, what what has happened? If you're comfortable talking about it? Uh, oh yeah, no, no. I mean, it happens. Um, they had booked. They got with us before July, and they booked us the entire month of July. 
Um, and then they broke it down in two contracts. They said, we'll give you the whole rest of the year in the second contract. But what they were doing was testing out whether they wanted to do, um, it was actually Saturdays, whether they wanted to do Saturdays or Sundays. Um, and they decided on Sundays. And I had booked 11 Saturdays with them. That was basically every Saturday I had left for the remainder of the year and lost all of them uh, to corporate policy. So what can you do? Good moment for stoicism, right? Indeed, yeah. things that you can't control and you can't. Um, yeah. Point of personal privilege? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, were you a country singer or a performer oh, of some kind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I cover, I tell people I cover everything from Frank Sinatra to Coolio, which we did as the bonus feature. We'll get a slight uh, showing of Gangster's Paradise. Yeah, and also um, the thongs. Yeah, dude, I mean, especially now with the internet, you can cover everything. It makes it real easy. Yeah, so if you guys want to hear his rendition of Coolio yes. and the thong song, then hit us up at lastnarriage.com slash Patreon. But why don't we get into this movie? We always start with the Google description, and that leads off our discussion. So here we go. Crazy Heart came out in 2009. It's a drama slash romance, two hours and two minutes long. 7.2 on the IMDb, 90, 90% Rotten Tomatoes, and a 4 out of 4 from RogerEbert.com, and 89% of Google users like it. The description is, with too many years of hazy days and boozy nights, former country music legend Bad Blake, played by Jeff Bridges or Jeff Lebowski, is reduced to playing dives and bowling alleys. In town for his latest gig, Blake meets Gene Craddock, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, a sympathetic reporter who has come to do a story on him. He unexpectedly, war unexpectedly warms to her and a romance begins. Then the singer finds himself at a crossroads that may threaten his last shot at happiness. Came out December 16, 2009. Director Scott Cooper... And the uh, the main song in this was The Weary Kind, which won an Academy Award, as did Jeff Lebowski for his turn as Bad Blake. So uh, that is a Google description. Robert, what did you think of that Google description there? Well, the way you said it was really, it struck a heart, it cored in my heart. I was started to weep and cry a little bit. You just did it so beautifully. Um, you know, you talked about the movie and you said things and things that happened in the movie. And I was just really moved by how wonderful you did that and how incredible that description was about the movie that we watched. Man, I could just, I could really just hear it over and over again. It would just make me so happy. <laughs> it's a good time for that banner. <laughs> I think you should read this synopsis again. It was so moving. It was honestly more moving than the movie. I think that might be true. Now, the weird thing about this movie is, and in the description they don't mention this, is the heavy, heavy amount of alcohol that is kind of the point of uh, Jeff Lebowski's kind of problem, right? He's been an alcoholic for years and years. He's been mm -hmm. drifting through life as this country singer who had some modicum of success at some point. And then he kind of tried to coast on that. He tried to live off of some of his older hits and just keep on playing them without creating anything new of value. Pulling and, James Taylor. Yeah, and he never grew out of that. So he was just kind of drifting through into his upper 50s as if he was still in his mid-twenties, complete with, you know, the boozing up all night and, and the uh, groupies, the women showing up at the shows. Uh, Dude, and chicks are like that at shows. Oh, my goodness. Chicks are crazy at shows. <laughs> when I worked on Carnival, I had a woman one time, and granted, I, it was probably the way I was dressed, but I was singing Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On, and I was laying on top of the piano and the piano bar while I was singing this, and I guess I got off. The piano bar has got like this little circular bar around it. And I was walking around singing the song, you know, just with all my heart. And uh, this woman grabbed me. And has you ever, you ever had somebody like stick their knee like right in the middle of your back and grab your shoulders and pull you back? 
And this lady caught me where the bar top did that. So she pulls me back. You got you to gotta take me off the main screen. It's weirding me out. Yes, I got to see all y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she was, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'll never figure it out. I, I, this is the moment I joined the Me Too movement. And this woman proceeded to lick my ear in front of the entire crowd of strangers. I've never met. I don't know this woman. And so they are exactly like we saw in the movie. They, man, they will hound you out of the show. They will ear rape you. They will ear rape you. Oh God, they will ear rape you. Yeah. Yeah, you're. I've been telling about the evils of women for years. So thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Not a problem. Just grab a guitar, play some Oasis, Wonderwall, Golden. You're golden. Just play it 40 different times at a at a bar. They'll pay you, and you'll get all the ladies right there. As many as you can handle. As many as you can handle. Oh, goodness. Nope. That was not my bag. I don't like doing crazy women at bars that hit on you when you sing songs. Anymore. 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 No, man. Ever. It's not cool. It's too easy. Where's the fun of that when they just Where's the chase? Where's the chase? Exactly. He's a hunter. He doesn't want to be I'm from Texas. A goat. He's a T-Rex. He needs to hunt. (laughs) Don't leave it chained up right there and raise it out of a little pit, okay? Let it loose in the wild. That's right. You can leave it in a caged area. I'm okay with that, but at least at least it'll work for it. You gotta satisfy those predatory instincts <laughs> a little bit. Come on. I wanna feel like somewhat of a man, okay? Uh yep. Movie's good. Your version of the synopsis was perfect. Yeah, Daniel. Reading it. You, you read it. it, you read it you, word you for word. Me. You moved me. So where do you want to go with this, guys? Who's got something in their notes that is of interest? Uh you know the only thing that was interesting on me is the song uh Funny How Fallen Feels Like Flying. And they use that, but they use it <clears throat> for the whole movie, uh, depicting the whole movie that he's actually falling the whole time, but he feels like he's flying because he met the Molly Arnold, we met Gene, but he's actually falling even though he's feeling like he's making his way up, everything's going his way with this chick, but then he tragically crashes at the bottom of it. But they re- keep repeating those same lines in that song, and I always thought it was a neat way of telling the whole story right there in two seconds without now, actually watching. Scott, I mean. You're clearly you have a lot of experience with these bar women or these women that are attracted to these musicians. You're not one of these women yourself, but you know about them a little bit. This Molly character, she she meets him when he is he's kind of old and disheveled and drunk all the time. He slurs his words. He's smoking all the time. He's just kind of stumbling over things. But he's still this legendary singer country guy. I don't know what's I, I assume that. Uh, the the women that are just want to bang him in the bars, they're just like a one done, one and done situation where there's like, hey, guess who I had sex with last night? Bad Blake, what's up? But the Molly girl, she's like interested in a relationship with this train wreck, and I think I don't know, it, it strikes me as <laughs> like there's not something good going on with her. Like she seems a little messed up too, because I yeah, I I would think that I'd be not touched. I'd be I, I'd be friends with the guy, but. I wouldn't climb into bed with this, this guy that like repeatedly and have him around my kid and stuff. I mean, he seems yeah. like a normal guy, but you know, he's not, he's not a fully functioning human being. Right. Right. No, I, I don't know. I think it probably has more to do with the fact that they play us along the lines of being vulnerable. Um, just because you're kind of lonely, you know, you're the only person in the corner all by yourself singing to people sometimes. I mean, not, not that he was doing that in the, the bar. He's got a band, but ultimately it's still kind of just you. And even the way that you could tell by the way the woman looked at him, like there was no one else on that stage, you know, it was just bad Blake. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest, but she had, you, you could tell she had her doubts. I mean, she was always hesitant about it. Um, telling him not to drink in front of the kid, 
Um, I mean, she says it a whole bunch of times that she had doubts about him. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe it's just too strong. I know some chicks just absolutely love musicians. It doesn't matter what you do. Right. My, my take on her situation was that she'd gone down that road before. She'd uh, already been married and divorced. And I think alcohol played a big role in that. And so she had that that uh, experience and the sneaking suspicion that this was another guy who would be a similar thing. And she was trying to ignore that and continue to move forward because she did like him. But in a way, he was like paying for the sins of her previous relationships. So she wasn't really giving him like the full um, opportunity, right? Like he was not, he was given a very short leash when it came down to it. Yeah. Where, well, she says it. She says it in the line, uh, I know what I don't want to do again. I mean, she says it. She's already aware yeah. of it. Um, she knew right off the bat that he was just another one of them. Um, I, at that point, it turns probably into the big Blick thing where he's just a legend and she's enjoying that moment. But otherwise, she knew everything about him that she didn't like about him and she did it anyway. Yeah. Now, did you guys find that the the movie didn't really tell the crux of the story or the, the big climactic, like difficult scene where he loses the kid? It's not clear to me in watching it that he was drunk and that happened. To me, he was with the family. He went to the aquarium with them, and then they wanted to give the mom a break. And so they were going to go hang out and do stuff, him and the kid. And he's like, oh, let's go wet our whistle in this bar. And he's going to go get one drink and get the kid a ginger ale. And right. then the, he tells the kid, oh, yeah, go explore whatever. And he lose, you know, he, he doesn't keep his eye on the kid for like five, ten seconds, and the kid's gone. That doesn't tell me that Bad Blake was drunk and that's why that happened. That tells right. me that the kid is doing a kid thing and he looked away for five, ten seconds and the kid disappears. And he had one sip of that double whiskey and that was it as far as we saw in, on the screen. But then later on when he refers back to that situation, he says that he was drunk. And so I was very confused by that because when would he have had an opportunity to be drunk to have that situation arise? And how did him being drunk allegedly have anything to do with that event that you know, became the thing that broke uh, his relationship with the mother there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Daniel. That that's the, the almost the entirety of my notes were about that scene where I thought the bad Blake got a raw deal in this little episode where he looks, he tells Buddy, you know, Buddy wants to go explore the restaurant. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. And yeah, he he's out of his sight for five, 10 seconds. Tell me what parent hasn't had their kid out of their sight for more than five to 10 seconds, every single one of them. So this could happen to anybody. It didn't happen because this guy was wasted drunk i got lost in astroworld and it happened and like your, your parents were probably sober at the sober time. completely sober my dad's never touched alcohol no that's not true my dad didn't touch alcohol until i was 21 and even and better yet their custody or stewardship of you at that time couldn't be said to be negligent right oh no not at all mm -mm. it's just something that it, happens from it, time it was to time. it was it was like a one of those i turn left to look they go right and someone just happens to walk in between you and them to where even if you do turn around, you're not even going to see them five feet away because it's already been blocked. And then at that point, you don't know what to do. I mean, I remember the full panic. God almighty, I remember the panic of being lost. But no, it just happened. They weren't drunk. It just, I went one way, turned around and they were gone. Yeah. No, yeah. but you know, at the same time though, in the movie, when he's over there, he's over there um, when he hurt his foot. Because he did it on his way to Santa Fe. So he stays with her the whole time. He's got his little broken foot. And there's that moment when they're outside. And that's when she says, just don't drink in front of Buddy. And he goes, okay. And he just chugs his whiskey. So maybe that was the part of the story where they were trying to insinuate that even 
though he wasn't drinking in that scene, he was drinking at least at the house while he was around yeah. him. See, I saw that scene where he, she was going to introduce him to Buddy, and, and the mother and, and Bad Blake were enjoying having a, a drink, and she said, don't drink in front of him, so he finishes his drink so that he's not right. being in front of him. And I, I guess the story, as presented in the film, doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't present it very well to me that he's a drunk and he's having difficulty managing his life. And it doesn't show the mother's concern for not not showing the kid him drinking as a big issue. Like, well, you know, the other scene thing, um, nothing really happens as a result. Like, I thought that the kid would, I don't know, have had a traumatic experience with his his real father being an alcoholic and then react to seeing somebody drinking and, and have like an issue. But that never happens. So like, there's never any consequence of him drinking in front of the kid, except for the kid disappearing, and that would have happened anyway. Right. Um, well, I mean, I guess maybe the other side of the story too on it is the mother just being quick to be overreacting, because uh, they show that in the scene where he first takes the kid when he first goes out with Buddy, and he's like two minutes behind her in the house. She walks in the house first and is walking around screaming, "Buddy, Buddy, where are you?" I mean, this is what in the '90s. Yeah, it's in the '90s. It's got to be in the '90s. The movie is set. I mean, they're talking on house phones, wireless house phones. Um, the guy at the very end, the son, makes the implication that he's got caller ID when he says, I've got your number. Um, so it's got to be in the 90s at some point. So there's got to be some slight panic because it's not like they texted her and said, hey, we're off partying around or whatnot. And we're going to be back. But even then, she freaked out in that moment. So even if he only had the two sips, the fact that he was lost in the first place, she's, she probably would have freaked out equally, even if he hadn't drunk at all. Maybe she would have freaked out because she she freaked out the first time, and the the movie didn't give us the impression that he was drinking the first night they hung out. Right, and she clearly doesn't trust him and is questioning her own judgment in leaving the kid with him mm -hmm. because you know I I gotta wonder how much responsibility she bears if she thinks he's that much of a, a mess and that this could only happen to him because he's negligent or a drunk or whatever. Then how much guilt she feels when anything happens on his watch. Right. And then, so then she's like overreacts and hates herself. And how, why did I ever trust you? And yeah. I knew well, I couldn't trust be, you. Why did I? That could be a better explanation for why she acted out the way she did the first time, just with them being gone the first night, because she already knew what he was in the first place. And she was reacting how she thought appropriate to what of a person right. she actually thought he was in the first place. <laughs> Cause she never trusted him. It never seemed like she trusted him. Though right. she entrusted her child that. with him. Yeah, so I know, right? She didn't trust him, but then she gave in to trusting him with her most precious thing and then got burned for it. So then she's going to be doubly like upset with her own with herself, right? So maybe that's why another component to why she overreacted because she'd been burned before. Like It's kind of established that she had been with some men in the past who weren't so good for her and they had drinking problems, etc. And so she was very cautious around that with him, yet still gave him that partial chance, but then punished him for the sins of the others. And then when the kid gets lost and, and your story is actually pretty telling because, you know, you do panic when you get lost like that. You do freak out. Oh man, it was, I can still feel it. Like I yeah. had to have been like six or seven and I can still, I can feel it. You know, when, anxiety. When my wife and I, we, we discussed with our kids, you know, how a typical thing that you'll say when a kid's resistant to, to leaving a place is like, all right, we're going to go without you. Um, I think this is a Stefan Molyneux point, and, and we adhere to this. To a kid's perspective, that is almost tantamount to a death sentence because to them, 
you know, they don't get that their single like lifeline to sustaining, you know, where where they live and how they get fed and taken care of is just telling them that they're going to leave them there. So the kid's going to be thinking, holy shit, I'm on my own. I'm going to die. You know, and that's one of the things that makes it so traumatic because they, they can't comprehend it. You know, they, they don't have the context um, right. to, to understand what's going on. Hide and seek game where they don't even realize the person's behind the hand. <laughs> I do like Mike's point. You should pull that up on a little banner. He prioritized getting drunk over watching the kid. I mean, that was obvious. He went out of his way to I, go get that drink. I still don't see that as neglect, though. I mean, imagine if he had drunk, if he was thirsty, he just wanted a glass of water. Right. Well, I mean, then it, then it would be an easy way to say that's not neglect. Because <clears throat> it's just getting a glass of water and moving along. But not only did he order one McClure's, he ordered a double. I mean, that's, that was his first drink off the bat. And given that it is Houston and it is hot, that drink is going to do some good when you are sweated out all the water in your system. Mm. I don't know. You know, the, the armchair director that I am, I would have liked to see him have gone to this bar, had that double, and then ordered another, yeah. and then he gets lost. Right. To the point to where, okay, now he's drunk and clearly giving in to his addiction by ordering even more, and that results in the kid getting lost. Because what we're left with is, oh, he ordered a drink, has a sip, and kid disappears. Maybe that's the twist on that moment that he can't even he can't even say that he wasn't drinking, that it was only one sip, you know? Yeah. So like when like he's he talking, that ability. Well, like when he's talking to the mall security guard and the, <laughs> the security guard's like, "Have you had anything to drink?" And he says, "Well, yeah, one drink." Yeah. But and he's like, "What does that have to do with it?" Yeah. Right. Because to me, that that seemed like it was a gotcha situation that was going to be the movie's point was, yeah, technically he had had a sip of a drink and and he's going to get railroaded for it, but he wasn't mm-hmm. actually drunk and that didn't contribute to the problem but then later on he admits or says that he was drunk that time at the time so i don't know it's just it's 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 just not presented very well as an audience yeah. i'm i'm confused by the situation yeah, i'm with you daniel nice. it would have nice maybe if you go back in the scene maybe and you can see like a flask in his pocket or something to imply that he was taking sips because otherwise i agree it doesn't it doesn't give the impression that he went there drunk now ultimately though it's not it's the more important aspect is that he has been drunk his entire life and he's turning his life around. And this is more just kind of like a kick in the ass to an impetus to actually turn his life around. I guess that's the important thing. Yeah. This becomes his rock bottom moment that makes him finally realize that perhaps he has a problem, which gets him to seek help and want to get sober. And that's good. But I keep going back to, you know, it was the kind of this gotcha, like technicality that this yeah. being this situation, you know, it wasn't like he actually hit rock bottom. And like even his car accident, it was like he fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. It wasn't like he was like super drunk and had the accident. I mean, sure, he was drinking. He had a flask on him. But it's, again, not presented as if he's drunk while driving. Right. No, he just looked tired. And that that is a musician. I mean, granted, everybody's made tired drives. It'd be silly to say that it's only one person or one sector of the world that has made a tired drive. But, man, I have. I've had a gig in Austin. You finish it. 11 o'clock, you got to pack up all your shit and it takes you an hour to do that and get out of there. You're gone at 12 o'clock, but then you got to drive back to Houston and play a gig the next day at 12 o'clock. And I mean, you make that drive and you're just falling asleep at the wheel. That stuff's brutal. I wouldn't be surprised. Plus, he's an old man. I'm an ableist. He's an old man. He can't drive that long without needing a nap. <laughs> Let the man nap. Could have saved everything. Just pull over to a rest stop. The government didn't have rest stops in the 90s, guys. It would have been bad. He could have saved a lot of people. If Terrible. only, if only if the only. government 
If only had government in the nineties, man. If only we were stuck on the word is. Now, uh, back to the you know he does use this technicality as a hitting rock bottom and wanting to get sober, and he springs words in into a, a like almost a Jordan Peterson like clean his room situation where he's finally cleaned himself up. He cleans his own house, and then he wants to go and get uh, the 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 mother and the child back in his life, and she turns him down. And I mean, I. I I can't begrudge her for making that decision, but I felt like that was uh, a little bit unfair to him, especially if she still loved him. I mean, it's totally up to her, of course, but like he actually did the thing that he needed to do and it didn't result in her recognizing it, I guess. But on the flip side of it, it also was the impetus for him to write his best song, right? He finally created something new after coasting on prior material for 20 or 30 years. And now he had something happen that impacted his personal situation that drove him to, to create something very, very beautiful and write that song that he gave to his, uh, his partner, Tommy sweet. Was that the guy, the Colin Farrell character, mm-hmm. his protege, his protege who upstaged Tommy him. Sweet. And he was very, um, he's very reticent to <laughs> open him or, uh, yeah. now can you speak to that a little bit, Scott? Because, oh, you know, yeah. In, in, in being a musician yourself, I mean, is that like a big deal where people oh, yeah. will have like, an ego and people get checked, especially if somebody surpasses them who they've mm-hmm. kind of shepherded along a little bit? Yep. Um, one of my good buddies who was one of, and it's really funny to me that this is the story, he was in one of the number one reggae bands in Houston, and now he is a defense lawyer. One of those really awesome turn yourself around stories, like a heroin addict doing all kinds of cocaine, all, all just freaking everything. Turns life around, gets his lawyer degree, and he, now he's a defense lawyer, criminal lawyer. Um, so that's awesome, but I'll never forget it. The first day I met him, uh, we were playing a benefit concert, and um, I had played maybe one show with his band because um, the guy that was his lead guitar player um, hosted an open mic that I went to. And, um, so I started playing with him. Um, and then, uh, he had a drummer, which was naturally the other guy's drummer. So basically his band. (laughs) And so we go to this benefit and they're all set up. It's a full band thing. And I, I remember he walked up to me and he, he didn't introduce himself. He just, he leaned in and he said, if you steal my band, I'll fucking kill you. And that was it. That was all he said to me. I mean, he's one of my great friends now, but it's one of those that I was, I was the new guy on the scene. Um, I was kind of just stepping in a little bit on his shoes, not so much in a way that, oh, I'm amazing. But no, he uh, he absolutely, that that ego of worrying about people coming in and stepping on your territory or, or taking your shit, um, taking your spotlight. What else do you have except standing on the front of the stage with the spotlight on you if you're a musician? I mean, you're, I always tell people you're either the head of the party or your background noise. There's only two options. So Tommy, he shepherded along when Blake was having a measure of success, right? And then Tommy Sweet kind of surpassed him. So do you think that plays into uh, how Bad Blake treats the backup bands that he's working with on the, uh, you know, the road bands or whatever, the tour? Like they provide a backup band to him when he's there and he treats them like garbage, which is kind of unfortunate. Like a lot of them were big fans of his. They, uh, they legend and he was no, like... I would say that's just something that comes with him being a lifelong musician um, and dealing with band egos um, because they exist. Man, do they exist. Um, Everybody's got an ego in this business. But the um, 
I don't. I wouldn't say I was surprised by the way he treated background bands. I mean, uh, he's obviously a drunk and an asshole to begin with, just in his character. But no, when you've dealt with, I mean, even the way he treats the sound guy. Um, I've had issues with sound guys. Like you, it, it happens when when someone else is doing shit like that, and you just feel like you know you want something done a little differently. Like you'll 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 speak up. Uh, that didn't surprise me. Um, so. Yeah, now that the sound guy situation was kind of interesting because I felt like Bad Blake was sort of taking it out on him because he was Tommy Sweet's sound guy. So he's kind of, you know, putting that little extra edge of dickness into yeah. his uh, interaction right. with him. But at the same time, uh, you know, you've got the monitors, right? Or he's got monitors in his ears up on stage. And that's different than what's going to hit the audience, right? So yes. whatever the mix is where the sound guy is versus what the mm -hmm. artist what the is going to hear. Gonna hear. Mm hmm yeah, because I remember actually going to, back in the 90s, uh, an REM concert in Seattle. And it was an outdoor concert. And the mix was awful in the audience. But if you plugged your ears or had earphones or um, earplugs in, it sounded great. And so it was a case of the guy doing the soundboard, you know, in the, in the back of the audience. He had ear, earplugs in. And so he was mixing to that. So anyone who didn't have earplugs in or wasn't plugging their ears could barely hear the, the music at all. It was terrible. No, man, if you ever go to a concert, stand as close to the sound guy as possible because he is mixing it to where it sounds good to him. And so if you're standing as close to him as possible, you're going to hear the best sound of the show. Or her. You sexist. Or her. I don't think I've ever met a female sound sound girl. Oh, my representation. Diversity. Sound girl. Ugh. I'm going to start protesting. Yeah, so so back to the... So you, you pretty much dispelled my theory that we had Bad Blake taking it out on the other bands as a result of him being burned by the Tommy Sweet thing or the perceived slight, which was similar to how the Maggie Gyllenhaal character was treating him based on her past relationships with men. So she was treating him differently based on her past experience, just like he was treating new bands differently because of his past experience with Tommy, even though Tommy was actually a good guy trying to help him out, like trying to like advance his career, help him in any yeah, way that well and they show that because they show that the record companies the people that are getting in the way even tommy or not both of them say it uh blake says they won't let me write a solo album which is stupid that they won't let me write a solo album um and then tommy says the same thing that the record company doesn't want us to do a duet like they don't see that as the best next move um which stinks because you got clearly two great musicians that want to collaborate and red tape is getting in the way I am shocked. Now, I don't blame them, though, because they've got this guy, Bad Blake, who's coasting, right? He's not creating anything new. And I i don't know if this is like a thing, but it seems like so many bands and so many artists sort of peak at a certain time in their life, like a young point in their life, and then they coast from there. Like, there's very few bands that are consistently good for a decade or two, you know? Yeah, well, but... Man, it's so hard to write those songs. I mean, the, the show does a good job of, of portraying that. It's so hard to write those songs. I mean, you can write bullshit songs. That's not difficult. Uh, anybody can. I'm sitting in the back of my truck drinking beer with my girl. Like, anybody can write that fucking song. Well, take an amazing song or an amazing band, like the Rolling Stones. Like, how much of their stuff from the 60s and 70s still gets play versus anything after? Yeah, but they stole half their shit. I mean, that's... <laughs> 30s 20s 30s steals blues blues musicians i mean that was what they were they really were um led zeppelin the same thing um oh man what's the song uh, it's gonna slip my brain uh when the levee breaks led zeppelin old blues song from the 30s i mean 
listen to it now it's amazing but it was an old blues song um and dude everybody freaking steals shit <laughs> we're rolling stone same thing who knows how good they'd be if they were actually writing stuff that was theirs at the time you know most of those bands were together for about 10 years before they ever made it the beatles were hanging around in pubs for about 10 years before they went big same thing with rolling stones like that's about the average 10 years before a band will make it big I imagine it takes a while to like hone your skills and gel as a as a unit oh right? yeah oh yeah 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 going yeah yeah dude absolutely to get to that sync level that stuff's tough but when you feel it man god when you feel it that's fun that's addicting getting on stage and the best are when you don't even have to look at each other you can you just slow down enough that you can feel that something's about to change in the song and then it it happens and nobody said a word but everybody hit this everybody did it that just you changed the whole dynamic of the song without ever speaking and it was all just based off this you this building feeling um but you don't get that with background bands so why the hell wouldn't you treat them like shit um they're just hired guns they don't care they don't care about your music so it's it's kind of a flip side of i can see why he would treat them bad they're just paid to be there um well i counter that the bowling band they were excited to play with they them. but they that bad. yeah that was getting down to like uh they were good because that was those are people who still play because they love it you know you man whenever i tell myself i do this for a living and i'm going to work like that shit frustrates the hell out of me we lost him um they were still doing it for fun um but that was also the guy who wrote the song we talked about that earlier the guy who shows up at his door is ryan bingham and he wrote the actual song for the movie crazy heart and he did it on his drive they said um he got the phone call asking if he would write the song and he was making a drive i don't know from where to where for a gig but on his drive there he actually wrote that song um just on the drive and then he sent it in and they were like oh well that's gonna that's it that's that's the main title song and that was how they got that song he did it on one stab his first try writing it incredible he's a good songwriter but he's got stupid political beliefs that's all too common coming out of hollywood and entertainment Mm -hmm. yeah you went to the bathroom i hope you washed your hands robert no i was a sneezing fit i didn't want to subject everybody to that no thank you for that oh we could have saved your soul that was the superstition daniel that's why you cover your mouth when you sneeze is to save your soul so it doesn't stay in your body Mm -hmm. okay yeah that makes sense yeah so so robert uh, scott hosts a trivia night and um, I don't. I, don't I know love you... trivia. Yeah, trivia. That's what I'm was on talking. a. I'm on a recurring team here in the Northwest. Very nice. It's known as uh, Bob Blah Blah's Law Blog. Very and nice. And we. I would are... love to say that as a host. Yeah. Most people seem to enjoy it. So that's, <laughs> that's a good, good name. It's a good name. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we are on a. Uh, I think we're on about a four-month win streak. Very nice. Okay, Thank so you. You, my favorite trivia question. Here you go. Let's see All if right. you get this. Daniel did not get this. He won't get it. I might. He didn't get it. it. Was he got? He struggled. So a month starting on a Sunday always has what? It's a trivia question. Mm-hmm. A month starting on a Sunday always has what? No, Friday it's not the 13th. The, no, you bastard. Is that wrong? No, you got it. You got what it. What did you say? Friday the 13th. Yes, that is right. Yeah. It was a Friday mm. the 13th. Mm-hmm. And my answer available in the pre-show for our Patreon supporters was mm-hmm. a Monday on the 2nd, which is not mm-hmm. wrong. It's just not, it's not significant. Wrong. It's just not significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trivia yeah. has been fun. But no, music's when, when more exciting. Uh, we never won, but we did win uh, best name. Well, there you go. I do give bonus points for good names. The other day I had uh, Sigourney Beavers. Oh, that's not bad. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Our, our name was uh, Pirate Cock Punchers. Nice. 
What nice. kind of what kind of what kind of prizes or money or bar oh, credit or whatever you yeah, do? That's, you that's dependent on the, the venue. On the place. Uh, yeah, I do a, a craft beer bar and a wine bar. And I mean, I, I've talked the wine bar into doing the same um, gifts as the uh, bar bar. Excuse me. Um, and doing like little gift cards. Um, but it's been yep. fun. It's been a nice Scott, break from people yelling out Freebird. Scott, you were telling me that you actually have some issues with getting the participants to not cheat. Oh, those fuckers. And uh, I'm wondering um, if you could explain that for just a moment, and then maybe Robert, do you have any uh, solution that they might, you know, that they implement in your trivia night that might help him? Dude, no, our guy, our guy, we could be sitting at a table, and right next to us at the table over, every single one of them could be on their cell phones, and he won't say shit, and we're just like, what the fuck, bro? You said at the beginning, no devices. We turn them all off. We put them in our pockets. We don't do anything until halftime, and then we can like look at our answers or whatever. But people will just be sitting there, and they're probably just texting or whatever, but you don't know. I mean, we always crush them anyway, but, you know. See, that's half of my argument is, because usually the teams that complain to me are the teams that end up freaking winning anyway. See, I had phone jails. Um, I had Tupperware containers that I would give to teams and be like, you got to put your phone in the bucket. You can keep the bucket. So it's not like I'm taking your phone from you, but it's got to sit in the middle of your table, put your phone in the bucket, put the lid on it. You don't get to use your, yeah, you don't get to use your phone. Uh, people will complain about freaking everything. One lady was, well, my husband's in Russia and I want to talk to him. And this is the only time I get to talk to him. Yada, yada, yada. So they complain like that. The only thing I can do now is get a wireless microphone and I'm just going to stand over people's shoulders. Like, what are you looking at on your phone there? You're proctoring the test. You fucker. Public shaming. Public shaming. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I do call people out on the microphone. I'll absolutely say, hey, what are you doing over there on your phone? Are you looking at something? And... Usually you can tell by the deer in the headlights look whether or not they're cheating. But yeah. for the most part, some people are just sneaky as shit. Or for that matter, you can't catch everything. Um, well, you can't. I you mean, might... you could. someone could walk to the bathroom and then use their phone in the bathroom to get an answer and then yep. come back. I mean, <clears throat> yep. Yep. No, you can't. It's, it's freaking frustrating. But it's weird because, and I think I told you this earlier, because the, the wine venue that I do it at, those are the fuckers that cheat. The other venue that I do it at, which is far more progressive i don't know every i every conversation i hear there is something that i would probably disagree with um but they don't cheat like they're they want to play they want to do it honestly um yeah the game i play the rewards aren't you know so amazing so it's like why would you bother cheating i guess some people would do it just for the the bragging yeah. right or whatever yeah. or the thrill of winning I mean, yeah but there's, there's no pride in cheating to win right? i no know i know that's the big people thing still do it yeah yeah. What's funny to me, though, is that the wine venue, the people that complain about the people that are on their phones are people that have been caught on their phones. Hmm. So I'm like, well, I don't know how you want me to be mad when you've done this shit yourself. Like, yeah. if you're all cheaters, fuckers, just drink your wine and answer my question. So do you yeah. have our guy? Our guy is contractually required for the trivia to last two hours. Is that a similar deal to you? Um, I try to keep it at and under two hours. Uh, I'm not contractually obligated to make it last that long. But I try to keep it under it just because I'm doing something during the week. And if I want to keep people during the week, then I got to get them home. Are you writing the questions yourself or are you I using do. the national? Well, I mean, I oh, I don't know if there's an actual national thing. No, Amazon had a whole bunch of free books. Free! Um, Amazon had a whole bunch of free shit. Um, I bought a Trivial Pursuit book um, for like four bucks at half price books. And then uh, just egads of online websites and then occasionally something will pop up in your brain as an idea and you'll go look up something and 
like TV slogans or uh, game show slogans. That was fun. Okay, here's um, a question for you. Okay. Because our guy, the guy that makes it's, it's our company is called Fame Trivia, and the guy that writes him, his name is a, the Fish, and he used to be a radio DJ, and he's moved since, but he still does the trivia. But he will reuse so many questions mm. that half the time it's just a memory test. It's like, <laughs> no. Okay, we've had this question twice. Our, what like was our cool. what was the correct answer and what was our answer? I forget. So how do you do you get lazy and reuse an yeah. old question here and there, or what do you do? This is my book. Well, yeah. this was my starting book. Um, literally, dude, I went. These are all questions, and I just went in and pulled them off the internet, found crazy categories that I liked. Um, and did it all myself. I hate reusing questions. Uh, I've tried it, and I got called out instantly. Really? Like someone immediately was like, "Hey, you've asked this question before." I was yeah. like, "Well, then take the point." Like, yeah. Freak shut the hell up. Like enjoy. <laughs> Fucker. It's a memory test. Away. I'm just giving them away. But no, I do. I every every week. Um, I avoid it for a while. There, I was doing it where I would make like eight to ten categories. And then walk around with a glass and let them draw out the six categories that we were going to do for that night. Mm. Um, and then just use the other four the next week and make, you know, six more categories. So I had 10 and just keep doing that. But again, these fuckers complain about everything. So, no, I've gone full dictator. You will take my six categories and you will like them. And do you struggle with making the quiz, you know, just hard enough? So yes. It's not too easy. Yep. Not too hard. So that people, you know, feel like yep. they're contributing and doing well, yes. but not crushing it. Yep. I had a category. Art, right? Yeah, that is the art. That's the double-edged sword right there. How do I make a category that's just hard enough and just easy enough? Um, I had a category that was opening book sentences. Like, it's like the best the of times. Opening the worst of times. Yeah, right. Of, and, and I chose super famous books. Yeah. Like every single one of them. And I told, I told the crowd before I did this, I was like, look, this is going to be a hard category. But when I tell you the name of this book, none of you are going to go, I've never heard that. I've never heard of that before. Um, and the first one was Mind Comp. <laughs> uh, that was funny. Um, uh, you dog whistler, you. <laughs> that was so funny. Did anybody get it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that one I gave a hint on. I was like, because um, it was pretty ridiculous. But there was a German word in it. And I, I figured that would give it away. Um, but I told him that it was somebody from World War II. And for that moment, for the most part, they like, otherwise I didn't do it. But I had a guy, man, he, he fucking complains. He's sitting there goes, no, let's scrub this whole damn category. We don't want it. Um, and then I score their, their sheet and they got six out of eight. That's perfectly good score. Like, that's perfectly fine. And so I told him that and I called him out over the microphone. I was like, you got six out of eight freaking questions right. And you wanted me to X this whole category. I was like, that's it. Next week, I'm coming back with the easiest fucking trivia category ever. And I'm going to listen to all of you make the same sound every time I ask the question where you go, ah, everybody fucking got that one right. It's yep. like, yep, yep. I know the sound. Everybody makes the sound. Yep. I asked the question, their eyes. Who, is the, who is the first person to land on the moon? And everybody makes the same sound. Yeah, so what this has to do with the movie, I don't know. <laughs> Jeff Bridges was great at trivia. Um, his character in the movie was an avid trivia goer. Um, he spent a lot of time in bars. In he bars spent a lot trivia. of time in what bars. He also, actually, as a young bad Blake, he hosted trivia nights. See, well, there Very you go. Untrue fun right, fact. Ties right into Peak Scott M. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God, yes. Uh, that poor girl. 
She fell <laughs> off. That's what happens when you tell people they peaked in college. Life just turns to shit for you. So sad. Yeah, this is a, a Facebook uh, debate person that we would spar with a couple of years back. And she said, a uh, guy who probably peaked in college. Mm-hmm. That's what she referred to you as. If anything, yeah. I regressed in college. <laughs> You're probably pretty peak now. You just did the uh, Spartan race for the second or third time, right? Not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Third time. What's no, that? Fourth time. It's just those obstacle course races. I'm being like nerdy. Like a Warrior style thing? Yeah. Yeah, run around in the mud. Pretend like you're a kid for a little while and slug it out. I don't know. It's fun. Um, Jeff Bridges' character was also an avid obstacle course racer and Crazy Heart. <laughs> that's true. That's, 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 actually, that's actually why he survived the car crash. That's right. Yeah. Now, did you guys know this was based on a novel? Yeah, I saw that. The novel ends uh, rather differently. And the director actually preferred to shoot the scenes uh, in the novel, and he wanted it to end the same way as the novel. But the higher-ups said, no, we want to have a more uplifting ending where the character has had a full arc and recovered and become, uh, uh, you know, like cleaned his room and become more of a complete person and finally is creating something of value back into the world. But in the in the novel, and also this was shot, he falls off the wagon at the end and dies of a heart attack, which is foreshadowed earlier in after his accident when the doctor says... Right. You're going to die from a stroke or a heart attack or, you know, this or that or something else because you're in terrible yeah, shape. I I'd left it that way. That would have been good. That would have been a yeah, much better I, I think I would prefer the heart attack ending, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and there was been better. where he actually went and met his son. Oh, that would cool. Met him. And I think that's in the deleted scenes uh, section yeah. if you happen but to have it. goes with that song, dude. They keep, and they kept, they kept doing it. They kept saying the same line, funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. And that's every moment of, of his life in that, that, that shot. Uh, when he's first dating the girl, he's flying, but he's really falling. When he finally gets sober, he's flying, but he's still falling because he goes to her house and she just crushes him and says, if you love me, you'll leave me alone. Like, that's the whole thing. I, they should have. They, I, I think that would have made the movie even better if they had let it go on that way because it would have played on that line even more so. He was felt like flying so many different times and he's just falling, just crashing. Yeah, and I, I like your your take on this because I think that really is a strong st- central message to the movie. And, and had they used that more effectively, to where you know we actually saw him being drunk and it impacting and affecting him, and that contributing to the kid going getting lost, and him doing something that would have I don't know been a consequence uh, in his relationship with the woman, with the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, uh, as a result of him being drunk. Like if if it, had, I don't know if I. Well, Maybe well, even by numbers a little bit, but you know, telegraph at home, like, hey, he's a drunk, and here are the impacts of him being drunk, and here's the consequences as a result. Versus this sort of, we're alluding to it, we're not going to make it clear, it's a little ambiguous, and oh, he really wasn't drunk at this point, but he's going to get blamed as if he was. Right, but but I mean, man, but it's like he gets comfortable, and the more he gets comfortable, the more he becomes, you know, bad Blake himself. Um, I. I I mean, I agree. They should have done a better job of showing him drinking before he went to the mall if he was actually as drunk as they said he was, or as he said he was. Um, but I think it's just one of those moments that they left it up to us to just interpret that he was that drunk all the time. Because he just gets comfortable with her. <clears throat> like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I And who doesn't just that. get them? Who doesn't get a little worse once they get comfortable? I mean, yeah, all, you see married couples all the time, they end up getting fat, having, mm-hmm. you know, letting themselves go. You know, mm-hmm. you're with somebody who loves you almost unconditionally. Most mm-hmm. love is conditional, but yeah, you know, supports you and just wants to do best. But 
Yep. Yeah, and I mean, he's like, all he's in a, he's setting his ways, you know, 57. Set, you know, that's not going to change overnight. And she's young. <laughs> now, what did you guys take away as her motivation for being interested in him? Because I thought it was bizarre. Like, it seemed very out of place. He's almost 30 years older than her. He has a son about her age. And she's not a groupie. She's been with guys who have drinking problems before. So how does she even get into this situation? Because I, I find it kind of hard to believe that she would be interested in him. Chicks love bad boys, man. I don't have to tell you. Chicks love bad boys. That is true. Uh, she gives it away in her moment where he's laying on the ground on the bed and he goes, have you heard that song? And she goes, yeah, I think I've heard it before. And he goes, oh, that's what they say about all the good ones. Um, I just wrote that. And she goes, see, that's not fair. I think her big attraction to him was that she was starting to get into writing and he was a phenomenal writer. Okay. And, and so that that's why that moment like hurt her because it was difficult for her and it seemed so easy for him. It's so he, easy. It just pours out of you. Yeah. Right. And he didn't appreciate it. Right. Like he didn't. Well, he, he just kind of brushed it off. Uh, yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He took it for granted. Um, it was just something that happened instead of being a, the song that was going to take him to the next level. You know, it was just, this just happened. This was just a nonchalant kind of moment, you know, and she couldn't stand that. Um, but I think her biggest interest was that he was just a writer and she was starting to, because even that was one of the questions when he was interviewing her was, when did you become a writer? And then they give away that little hint of, well, I learned what I didn't want to do. Um, so maybe her fascination was just with him as being a songwriter and that it just, again, that man, that vulnerable side, yeah, that's what chicks love. That's right. I'm making assumptions about what women want. <laughs> like you're in a Mel Gibson movie. <sighs> That's right. Uh, so, That's Robert, right. I'm going to direct this at you, and I'm going to pull in uh, uh, an episode we did not too long ago on um, Bad Times at the El Royale, also starring Jeff Lebowski. Ooh. And in that film, I was noticing things that were untold, but almost purposefully. And so it was left to the viewer's imagination to fill in the gaps. And I appreciated that in that film. I'm noticing something similar in this one where they're sort of leaving things out, but not in the same kind of way where you fill it in, but in a way to where it feels missing. And yeah, no, at Ro Royale, it, it felt intentional. Every, every, every shot felt intentional to tell you just enough of what you needed to know to lead you on and, you know, get you interested in the story. Whereas this, it seems like it just seemed a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say sloppy because it doesn't, it wasn't a poorly made film, but I really think they missed a trick where the viewer could have been more on this journey with him and kind of see him self-destruct with the alcohol, you know, how easy it is to fall back into your vices once you've had this, um, this person accept you for who you are, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like there were a bunch of moments in this movie where it's almost setting something else up and then never delivers it. You know, there's a couple of things that happen and you're like, OK, this is going to resolve later. And then they just leave it open ended and they never like resolve the heart attack it. thing, like the heart attack thing and like her allusions to previous situations and it having some sort of impact, like either with the kid or with her or yeah, even the kid, especially the scene we were just talking about where she's hurt because it's so easy for him to write a song mm -hmm. and it's difficult for her, but we don't get a payoff from, for that later on. We don't get that. The reason that she's hurt by that is because she struggled so much. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like 
it's it's like there were all these elements. The bones were good, but the, the execution wasn't quite there. This, this could movie. be a case of lost in translation. I mean, the book could go through all this stuff, but they got to pick and choose what to film for the film. You have to. They did spend a lot of time trying to develop the love story. I think they could have cut out a pretty good amount of that. Um, the middle section of the they movie. Also, they also spent a lot of time at concerts or performances. Right, right. Right, which doesn't exactly. I mean, it's nice, and I enjoyed it, well, but it doesn't really move the plot forward a lot. No, no, I agree. It doesn't move the plot forward. What it does is it reminisces the plot, um, because the second the second concert that they show, they they give you a glimpse at what Bad Blake was like when he's sweating on stage and he's in it. And compared to the first one, where he's sitting on the freaking speaker and he's drunk out of his mind, like that's current Bad Blake. But they gave us a glimpse of what Bad Blake was. And maybe that's why uh, Gene falls for him, is because he gives her a glimpse of what his past was. Because, man, when there's some shows where you're just on it. There is, there is nothing you can pick that is not going to be the perfect song to, to, to make that wave. Just keep going with the crowd where you suckered him in like that, where you could literally get off stage and go dance with somebody in the middle of the song and then get back on it because it's just that hot of a moment. Um, I think that was what they tried to show with the second one, but they could have done it in the, the one concert where he's doing that. And they could have eliminated the first part um, and probably still had the same impact. But I think they were trying to, maybe that's what, maybe that's exactly what they were trying to do. Maybe they were doing that just for the sole purpose of giving us a glimpse at what Gene was attracted to, that there yep. was an inkling of a great musician inside the shell of a man. I it's will say, I will say before Daniel makes his excellent point, but I know he's going to make an excellent. <laughs> point. I will say that the the uh, the performances and the you know all that stuff, it wasn't just empty time. The, it was showing us his character, how he felt about each different thing, about his relationship with Tommy. You know, once he met this girl, how excited he was about that, and the second performance was a lot better. And it, it, it was doing work. It wasn't you know for the movie, right, right, but right. it didn't necessarily. Do anything to it. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Go ahead, Daniel. I agree yeah. with you. It, it was it was unnecessary. That's the, there was such a massive chunk of the middle of the movie spent on information that they probably could have summed up a lot quicker and yeah. taken the plot in a better direction. Agreed. And they could have filled in some of these uh, story threads. All right. So I'll just move this uh, this point earlier in post. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, to the point to the musical performances, that was actually the actors singing. And uh, they had a voice coach and, and got them through it. And I thought that they did a, a very fine job, Jeff Bridges and Colin Farrell, in their in their singing. And even Robert Duvall, of all people, was singing out on the uh, fishing boat. But my, my I point, appreciate that. The, the point I was going to make earlier was during that second performance, I think he's inspired by actually having a great musician playing with him who's not Oh, yeah. Oh not, yeah, dude. You know the the uh, the piano oh, man. playing with somebody that's good. That that's my lead guitar player, Austin. Uh, the first time I played with him, I remember I'll never forget it. He played um, "High and Dry" by Radiohead at an open mic, and I remember looking at my buddy next to me and going, "I would have paid to have seen that." Like, it was phenomenal. It's just that was probably my favorite thing about open mic nights is half the bar doesn't give a shit. You know, they're there drinking on a freaking Wednesday or Tuesday night, but the other half is tuned in and occasionally every once in a while someone would get up on the stage and just fucking blow your mind and just would be phenomenal um dude and that was that was my favorite thing but that was when you get up there with somebody that 
is a great musician that takes you to another level. It absolutely takes you to another level. It's if if I my biggest thing is I can throw a curveball at these guys any single moment, and and we do it all the time. Um, there's a video that I've got on my Instagram right now of us playing a reggae song, and we've never practiced it. I literally just was like, "Hey guys, here's the chords. Let's go." And they're just that good at what they do that it just sounds phenomenal. It sounds like you've been practicing it for 20 freaking years. So I totally get that point. That's absolutely true. Getting up on stage with somebody that is phenomenal will absolutely make you play better and make you play harder because then you just you get caught up in that moment again where what I was saying earlier where you don't even have to say anything to the person. You just feel it. You can just feel where the song is going to go. And without missing a beat or ever saying a word, the song just takes off on this marvelous path. So that's absolutely true. Getting up on the stage with the piano player because they did, they did, they showed that a whole bunch of times. He mentioned it to Gene. Your boy, your uncle's a great piano player. He says it numerous times to him. He calls him out and makes him on the piano solo. I mean, he goes out of his way to acknowledge that guy is a piano player. So that's absolutely true. Playing with yeah. good people will make you play better. Now, in a contrast that with his bowling alley performance, which is <laughs> rough this date, um, that was August twelfth of whatever year, and so this is apropos that we're doing this this time of year. But um, I felt like the Bowling Alley guys were a really good backup band as well. But he viewed them as showing him up because they were directly competing with him in his mind. Yeah, like, well, and he makes that comment too. Are they paying you more than me? Right, right. And that's the Tommy Sweet thing talking, right? That's like he felt like he had got burned before. And so he's viewing these guys who play the same, uh, the same uh, instruments that he plays as almost competitive in a way. Whereas in the second one, it's the piano player, and so it's a, it's it's more complimentary. You know what I mean? So he's right. able to accept that one as um, you know as being able to appreciate it. Right. Just playing music to play music, not playing music to to get something out of it. Um, right. Because he says that, and I mean, when he says that, come up early so we can learn some bad bone licks. You know, um, they wanted something out of Tom, or they wanted something out of Bad Blake, the piano player. He even says it. He's like, I, I play around occasionally. It's for fun, you know, maybe get paid for it. I've got to go to the bathroom. Y'all keep chatting. You know, chat, chat, chat. this is a funny moment about living in an RV is that sometimes in your brain, you're like, God, I don't want to go put that up. And then you realize that it's like three feet away. <laughs> yeah. And it's the most, it's the worst feeling in the world when you realize that you're too lazy to do something that's three feet away. But I got to go to the bathroom. That's like that door right there is probably seven feet away. And that is where I will go. Stay strong, sir. This is peak Scott M right here. All right, well, when he comes back, I think we should do our final notes and then summary and review and wind it down. And uh, I'll Frankenstein this thing together into a into a coherent show of some sort. Well done, Daniel. We appreciate all your hard work. Allegedly. It's going to be difficult to find where we first started and then aborted and then uh, restarted. Well, you you recorded the original attempt and then now this new one? Yes. Are you gonna, you're not going to pull material from that original attempt, are you, or are you? I have to because that's where all of the intro and the Google description shit is. So it's going to have to be. Oof. Yeah, it's going to be all an right. oof, but it's all right. It's fine. It's fine. It's not like I have two kids and a job and six other side hustles I'm trying to do. It's true. It's true. You don't do it. None of that stuff. So as a parent, would you, uh, you leave your kid in uh, Bad Blake's uh, care? You know, probably not. I wouldn't leave my, my kid in his care, but... I'm in a totally different situation and I can totally see, you know, a kid disappearing on, on you. Um, we try to be very vigilant about making sure that 
our kids are where we can see them and not too close to a road or an edge of something or, you know, whatever, uh, almost to the point where someone might classify us as helicopter parents. Yeah, I think I've mentioned that before. You guys are super vigilant, especially, well, I mean, guy kind of got to be when they're that young. I mean, as they get older and they're a little more autonomous. Right. And between the two kids, between the two, I mean, we got one who's fairly reserved. And then the other one is just like full on, no reservations whatsoever, no for awareness of like any potential consequences. And she sort of drags the other one uh, into situations. And so that can definitely get them into trouble. But that's why we have to keep an eye on them. And uh, they're great. We love them very much. But we would not have entrusted them into Bad Blake's care at any point. So you're thinking Maggie Gyllenhaal is a bad parent? Is that what you're saying? You're calling out Maggie Gyllenhaal for being no, terrible? Not so much as as I called out the Will Smith character in um, The Pursuit of Happiness. where you know, You're giving her a pass? Bad thing's a good parent? You're giving her a pass. No, I think she made a mistake. But I also think that she she had her own issues. She had some problems, and uh, nobody's perfect. So. Oh, yeah, listen to you. White knighting <laughs> for Maggie Gyllenhaal, but Will Smith sleeping in a bathroom for his kid. You can just chuck him under a bus. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, well, He had his own issues, Daniel. He was trying to be a, a successful businessman, and he was selling these bone density scanners door to door. He's out there slipping every day. All right. If people want to hear more about this, we'll uh, post it in the show notes page, <laughs> lastnerd.com slash 84. But uh, anyway, we're about to the point where we need to wind down this show. So does anyone have any last notes or points they want to make before we get into the final summer interview? Not I burned even. all my notes in the first five. Mm-hmm. All right. Shoot. Sounds great. So, as much out of this movie as possible. I, I, think, I think we have. So Robert, why don't you lead us off with final summer in review and then a rating uh, one through 10, a decimal point deep. Then we'll go to our guest, Scott M. And then I'll close us out. All right. Well, Crazy Heart, I thoroughly enjoyed Jeff Bridges on screen. I think he's very, has a very strong personality. I don't know if he's the most versatile actor, but that's fine. This, this role was right inside his wheelhouse and he executed it as you would expect him to. Um, he, uh, story-wise, I can't say it was super engaging. I mean, it's not like the most incredible story ever. Uh, if you buy the love story, I think you'll, you'll enjoy this more. But if you don't buy the love story, I think it's going to turn you off a little bit. Um, otherwise, it's just the story of this aging singer-songwriter guy and his troubles with alcoholism and just being a, a, a good human being. Um, I liked it. I would say it's a positive film, like, you know, above a five. But I, I, don't, I don't think I would have given him the best Oscar. I mean, I don't know what his competition was, but it wasn't super amazing. And then I think we've outlined our, outlined our issues we had with the, the story. Uh, so I would give this movie about a 6.9. 6.9. Not quite a seven. Not quite a seven. Um, 69. <laughs> watchable. Entertaining. But... Not super, not super engaging. I wasn't on the edge of my seat. This is more like a slice of life movie that I think you could pop in on a, a Friday night and watch some popcorn and you know, eat a movie. Daniel or Scott? Scott, Scott's next. His turn. He, it's his job. I like that. Uh, I do. Uh, I think my number probably would go up just a little bit on, but more of a point of personal privilege um, because I am a musician and um, so I can relate because the bias the venues that I've I, I am yeah, absolutely well, man. But it's so trippy because the, there's one venue I play at, and right behind me is is a concert hall. But it's 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 Bad Blake's. I mean, literally the other night I saw Billy Bob Thornton, um, and so it's a really small, neat venue. 
but it's these these X that have been out. Dina Carter, Strawberry Wine. You remember? I don't know if you remember that song. That was a huge hit in the '90s, and she's there. And so it's these big names that were once creams of the crop that have now fallen from grace, and they're still great musicians, but they play in these podunk little bars for 50 people that care to listen on a Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so there were parts of it that I think they did a good job of showing the struggle that is once you've fallen from the spotlight. Um, that is a much further fall than it is the climb to the top. Um, so that I did like. Um, they showed that struggle and what it's like playing in dive bars because sometimes you do just want to get shit-faced drunk and sit on a guitar case and make it through a bowling alley gig um, because you're playing in some shithole bar. Um, so there was stuff to it that, that I did appreciate. But overall, I do agree. There were parts of it that did not explain certain aspects of the movie. Um, I think I'd probably put my number somewhere more in like the 7.5 than a, a 6.9 um, just because it did show the truth. Show, show truth. I, I think that was a very true aspect um, as far as the, the musician lifestyle. Um, that was very, very true in its depiction. I know people that have fallen from grace and they're just washed up alcoholics now. Dude, it's got to be like 7 o'clock your time. You're, st- you're yawning like 40 different times down there. Hey now. Hey now. 11, 11 no. 44 p.m. here in Houston. Almost you haven't seen o'clock. one. It's almost 10 o'clock. You have not seen one. Mm-hmm. And we are old men, just like <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've got the youth. I've got the youth. In the body. movie, Bad Blake was sleeping in the middle of the afternoon. So come That's on. That's true. He was sleeping when he was driving. That's true. Yeah, he took naps it. at all hours. That's right. Yeah, while driving. So so. You know what? Seven six. Driving while you're sleeping. That's pretty impressive. All right. So six nine and seven six, both great positions. Uh, I will. Uh, I will agree that this was a pretty good movie. It did leave a little bit to be desired. I think that they had presented some foreshadowing elements that they did not take advantage of, which was a little bit disappointing. However, I did like the overall story arc where you have a guy who had some level of success and then coasted on that success for decades and came to a a realization that he needed to actually create something to provide value in the world to be able to kind of earn his redemption. And he had to suffer some loss to get there. So when he hit rock bottom and lost the the kid and the, the girl uh, and he made changes in his life in hopes to win them back and then that didn't happen that's what drove him to uh, has have his most powerful creative effort and he had his highest level of success as a result of that and ended up uh, ending the movie on a high note which like we had talked about earlier wasn't the same ending as the novel and wasn't the same ending that the director would have wanted but I think it still kind of works for the film in that he has sort of grown out of his perpetual adolescence and finally realized his own abilities as a man and be being able to create something in, in the world again. And so it ends fairly well. So I'm going to go with a 7.4, just a shy uh, below you, Scott M., below your peak, and oh, just above I did Robert, peak. I peaked at 7.6. 6.9. Six, <laughs> you know, there's a there's a... There's a Dave Matthews song called Funny the Way It Is. And one of the lines is someone's heartbreak becomes your favorite song. And that's exactly what that whole movie was, was just showing how someone can suffer absolutely everything and it becomes everybody else's peace. And man, dude, that shit's so wild with music. 
Yeah, he it's did. like he suffered. The whole movie was suffering, and he creates this masterpiece that becomes this beautiful song. They even show it with the setting of the concert where he sings it. You know, like it's a beautiful venue with that open backspace of this really nice setting, and it's just a beautiful song. Right, and I think the point of the film is that if he doesn't go through that breakup, that song doesn't get finished. Yep, you don't get it. Yep, you got to suffer a little. As Jordan Peterson would say, life is suffering. Do something. Clean your room. Buck up. Stand up with your shoulders back. Put on a t-shirt with sleeves. All right. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for (laughs) for being our guest. We have uh, been recording for quite some time, and and there's going to be some uh, piecing together of a total show here. But you have been a wonderful guest. Only uh, took two years. Only took two years to have you on. We will have you on again at some point. We have a whole list of movies that we had talked about doing, and I think any of them would be good. And Probably have more substance. Well, this one wasn't so bad. I think we got plenty of content out of this. Excellent. So uh, our audience, thank you guys for joining us for this episode of The Last Nights. You can find the show notes more at lastnights.com slash 84. You can also, also find it at the Launchpad Media. If you want some of the uh, almost two hours of additional bonus content, <laughs> most of it of us old men fussing around with new technology, mm-hmm. uh, hit us up at com slash Patreon, and you will be able to get that behind-the-scenes action. Uh, and uh, Robert, I think next week we are going to venture into Mother Russia to talk about Chernobyl because we oh, are yeah, yeah, yeah. we're Russian bots and yeah, we are Russians. We are, we are, and, and red and white on. We do we're Putin's in, bidding. I don't know if we were doing Putin's bidding. Why would we talk about Chernobyl? That doesn't make any sense. It seems anti. <laughs> the anti never existed. But uh, that that'll be a fun one. And the interesting thing about it is, um, it's a it's a mini series on HBO. Not quite enough content to do, you know, one episode of our show per episode of the HBO show, but there's probably enough content for two episodes. So what we're going to do is we're going to have some guests on from Free Market Green Earth, Free Market Green Earth, on our show to talk about certain aspects of the film or the the series, and then we'll do a follow up on their show the following week. So there's going to be a two parter where you get part of it on our show and part of it on their show. And that way we'll get some cross-pollination between our shows and audiences and everyone will become um, fans of each other. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. So that's going to be Nikki P. He also runs Sounds Like Liberty. And then Ben Panji is his co-host for Free Market Screener. So that will be our episode next week on a two-parter talking about Chernobyl. So it will both parts will release the same week, one on our channel and one on theirs? Is that what you're saying? Or is this going to be spread out, Dan? Let's not confuse everybody. There's gonna be part I'm one. trying not to confuse it. I'm confused. Part well, one is going to be personal, personal privilege. privilege. Please, let's keep, let's keep these down. Let's, <laughs> let's not use standard language here. <laughs> guys, guys. The key point is it's going to be two parts, one on our show, one on their show, times TBD. Okay. But it will happen. Okay. Everyone rest assured, point of privilege will be, we will recognize everyone's right to have the full two parts in their podcast feeds. And we will divulge additional information in the future at lastnighters.com that.com and uh be a banner i think that will be and uh let's say good night from last night peace out everyone All right, and maybe one more minute on the actual Anarchy podcast where we always talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective as much as we can, though I don't think we did very much on this episode because there wasn't really much in the way of anarchism, libertarianism, economics, or anything like that. But it still was an interesting conversation, and so I really want to thank you, Scott, for joining us. And um, 
it's been a lot of fun. Woo! I do appreciate it. Glad we could finally do it. Only took a while. Yes, but, it did take a while. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to take as long the next time. So we'll figure it out. Agreed. We'll pick, uh, and, uh, uh, Robert, do you have any, any final words for our audience? I mean, they should give us some uh, subscribes on the old YouTubes and the iTunes. And, of course, leave us a review because that's yeah, always reviews. Fun. Yeah. And support us on the Patreon if you really want to keep the lights on or anything like that. Give us some inspiration to keep doing this. Although I think we will probably keep doing it anyway because we're contractually <laughs> obligated by the Gypsy Curse. But, um, yeah, thanks for listening. Tune in. You guys are the real champions. We're just a couple of schmoes talking about some movies. But, you know, share the show. Tell your friends. And, um, make the world a better place. That's right, thanks, everybody. everybody. You're the real MVP. So check this out at actualenergy.com slash 141 for the show notes and more. And uh, $50 follow-up, Scott M., Writes under the alias Captain A on our <laughs> at Action Goodness, I need to do something again. That's been forever. <clears throat> Indeed. And it's good stuff. And we, we uh, welcome more. So anyway, uh, everyone, thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, audience. We're going to get in some Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Also available for our Patreon supporters at ActionRunnerKid.com slash Patreon. Peace out, everyone. Maximum freedom. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.